the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. We made it through another week. It's the Friday edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And every weekday at 4 o'clock on AM 630 KSLR, we're here to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions, questions about what we believe as Christians and why, Uh, questions if you're struggling with any portion of Scripture, if you've got difficult things going on in your life, we'll do the very best that we can to answer your questions. We'd love your calls. Our numbers are 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Somebody actually said to me, Email. That's so old school. I, I'm, I'm old. What can I say? Questions at CalvarySA.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And every day I tell you the safest way if you're driving in your car to call is to use the KSLR free mobile app. Just put the call now button uh, on the or push the call now button on your phone and you will be connected directly to our studio. Because it's Friday, we're headed for a new weekend. You know, I was thinking as I was walking with the Lord this morning up here, um, we who are Christians are like just the opposite of the rest of the world. And I don't mean just pastors. We who are Christians, weekends are our work days. And so this is another work weekend. People are going to get saved this weekend. Wherever you go to church, be on the lookout for those divine appointments that God has set up for you. Look for the people that are really looking lost and hungry, those who are hurting, those who just feel like they could use a little love or a little bit of prayer. Be the instrument that God uses to be in, to bless them. I'll tell you, it'll change your perspective on church. Uh, our weekends are always busy. Tonight uh, we have our Friday night Bible study in the New Testament. Tonight we start a brand new book, the book of Acts. Uh, Paula, as she was reading to me today, she asked me, she said, so how many times have we taught the book of Acts? In 22 years, this is our fourth time through as a church. I tell our church all the time that as Christians, we ought to read two books at least twice a year. The book of Acts is one of them. The book of Revelation is another. And that in addition to just your regular reading, but read through systematically. These are the two greatest books. And tonight we get to start in the book of Acts. God's model for church, I mean, given to us directly by the Lord. He is the head of the church, Paul tells us. So we ought to follow his prescription for church. And the book of Acts gives us exactly how to do that. There shouldn't be this great diversity and, well, this is how we do church and this is what we think we ought to do. Uh, Church ought to be done the way it was done by our founding church. Acts chapter 2, beginning in the 42nd verse. All we need to do is follow that model, and we can't miss what God has for us. People will grow. People will respond to the simple verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter teaching in the Bible, uh, emphasizing practical application. It changes everything. So we get a chance to start that tonight. 
Does it sound like I love the book of Acts? I really, really do. We're going to finish, finally, Romans chapter 7 on Sunday. Wherever you're going to church, go with an open heart and open ears. Let the Lord speak to your heart, and maybe this will be the weekend he changes everything in your life. Okay, let me go to some questions that have been sent while we wait for phone calls. 340-9585. Here is a question from our mobile app from Linda. And she asks, are being born again and inheriting the kingdom of God the same thing? And then she says, thanks. Linda, they're not the same thing, but inheriting the kingdom of God is a result of being born again. Being born again simply means that you die to yourself, you die to your hopes, you die to your dreams, and you begin living for somebody completely new because Jesus died for your sins, because he gave everything that you might have life. Being born again means repenting of your sin, learning to hate your sin. Being born again means that you recognize, and this is what we've really been talking about at length in Romans chapter 7, that we have no power on our own to stop sinning. The truth is our flesh, our carnal nature, wants to sin, and only Christ in us gives us the power to resist sin, and in order for that to occur, we must be born again. It's the death of the old you, and then like is represented in baptism, we go down into the water representing our funeral, we come up out of the water, and uh, out of the water we represent our new life in Christ, and that's the moment, Linda, that we begin walking with Jesus. So being born again results in us inheriting the kingdom of God. But not just the kingdom of God as we think of heaven, but the kingdom of God here on earth. We become men and women on a mission. We become men and women who have a purpose, and a purpose is simply to represent him. We are his, uh, a worldly term would be ambassadors. Uh, We represent him, and he is literally our all in all. I don't mean to sound like a worship song there, but but we, we really live for him. We live through him, and we live our lives toward him. And when we understand that, um, that's when everything begins to change, and the kingdom of heaven comes to live within us, and then the kingdom of heaven is experienced here on earth. Not perfection. The earth is still cursed. But a life with hope, direction, and meaning. We exchange, Linda, when we're born again, what we want for our lives in exchange for what Jesus wants for our lives by faith, trusting that he knows better and wants more for us. So I hope that answers your question, Linda, and it's clear from your question, you are born again. Start living every day, every minute for Jesus and see just how amazing the change in your life really is. Thanks a lot for the question and thanks for um, listening to the program. Here is another one from Thomas from our mobile app. Who were the Nicolaitans and what did they do? Uh, Jesus is writing to the churches in uh, in Asia Minor, the, the, the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And the reference of the Nicolaitans is a doctrine. It's not a specific people, Thomas, in a, in a they were Romans or they were Greeks. It wasn't that at all. But the, the word Nicolaitan comes from two Latin words, Nico meaning above and laity meaning the people. And so when Jesus says, I hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, what he's telling us he hates is that doctrine where there is a set of people, or we would call them clergy or priests, that stand between us and God. Now, I'm a pastor, and, and I, you know, I have the pulpit on, on Wednesdays and Fridays and Sundays, uh, but I recognize it. I'm simply doing my role, and this role in the church is that important because um, um, it's what God has called me to do, but it's equally important with every other role. So I'm not above, nor do I stand between. And Jesus has always hated a priesthood that sets itself above the common man or woman. And that's what the Nicolaitans were doing. And that's why he hates them, hates that doctrine so much. Now, again, he doesn't hate the people involved, but he wants them to repent. Now, the next time, If you're in this audience and you're a Catholic, the next time that you have to go to a priest and confess your sins, or the next time that you have to um, pray through a saint or through Mary in order to have the hopes of having your prayers heard, you're practicing Nicolaitan doctrine. So it's really important. You have access to God. It costs God everything that he has. And if we'll simply 
Go to him. He ever lives, Hebrews says, to make intercession for us. There's one mediator between man and God, the man, Christ Jesus, Paul tells Timothy. He's all we need. And anytime we put people between us and God, we're the ones who are getting ripped off. And it makes God angry. I don't mean mad like we get mad as humans, but it makes God angry. 340-9585 for your live calls. Let's go to Converse and talk with Lauren online. Thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. It's good to finally be out at a time I can hear the program. <laughs> Thanks for calling. I miss you. Yes, I uh, just started reading John again and was looking at uh, the time when the Pharisees came out to ask John who he was, and they put the question to him whether he was Elijah or the Messiah or someone else, and if not, why he was baptizing. And I didn't understand uh, the reference uh, as far as in Scripture, or maybe it's something that we don't have in the Bible from rabbinical tradition, as far as why they thought that uh, Elijah or someone else would be baptizing, what kind of authority that would have. But uh, I'll go ahead and listen for, uh, for your answer. Thank you, Lauren. Appreciate the question. Um, You have to understand the entire dynamic of of that uh, exchange. John the Baptist, when he began declaring um, the the message of God, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of God is near, um, God had been silent, Lauren, for 400 years. And Israel had no word from God. After uh, Malachi closes, there's this 400 silent years where people, some of them long for the word of God, but because of their sin and their rebellion, uh, God was absolutely silent. Imagine how excited, how anticipatory the people were when word came out and started spreading that there's a man at the Jordan out in the wilderness and, and he's declaring the word of God and the, and it would spread like wildfire. And that's why there's no hyperbole when it says in the whole countryside went out to see him. God was talking again and everybody was excited. Now, obviously, the religious, the religious leaders, they were the ones who were threatened by this. You know, they they represented, misrepresenting actually, but they represented that they spoke for God. And that if people had religious issues, they would come to them. There's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans all over again. And so they were the ones who sort of had a stake in this issue. So they needed to go out and find out who he was. Now, we know that the Old Testament prophecy says Elijah must come before the Messiah. And he will. Jesus actually said, if you can understand this, John was Elijah, not in person, but in the office. The the real Elijah is going to come back. Uh, in the Great Tribulation. He'll be one of the two witnesses, along with Moses uh, in in Revelation. Um, So they were asking, are you Elijah? In other words, are you here because the the Messiah, the Christ, is coming? Um, uh, This rumor started speculating that he was Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah brought back from the dead to deliver a message because Jeremiah was revered uh, among Jews as a prophet of God. So they would ask these questions because they were unable to understand that John was just nobody. He was just a servant. He was just a servant. And he was declaring, the one you're waiting for is coming and we need to get ready. Here's why they rejected John's message. These religious leaders especially. It's because John would look at them and call them hypocrites and snakes. He would look at them and challenge them to get right with God to repent of their sins, and they would think there's no need to repent. I'm the high priest, or I'm a servant of the high priest. And John was telling them the the bad news that they needed to get ready because they weren't ready for the Christ to come. Now, as we know, Lauren, the Christ, when he came, uh, wasn't what they expected. You know, they expected the Messiah to come and deliver them from Roman rule. They expected the Messiah, when he came, to set up a kingdom and, and, and rule from Jerusalem, uh, reestablishing the throne of David. That's what they expected. They didn't expect, because they didn't understand. Their, their hearts were hardened to Isaiah's suffering servant prophecies. So the truth is, they were excited that God was speaking again, but they didn't quite know who he was. Remember later, in, in Jesus' ministry. He will ask his disciples, who do people say that I am? 
And they'll say the same thing. They will say, some say, well, you're the prophet from Deuteronomy 18. Others say you're Jeremiah. Uh, others say you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. And then he looked at the disciples and said, but who do you say that I am? And that's the question. It was the question when John the Baptist was proclaiming repentance, sort of the first word of the gospel. It was the question when Jesus was walking this earth. Who do you say? That? It's an individual transaction. And that would stumble Israel. It would stumble Jews because they believe that as part of Israel, God's nation is chosen people. That the promises of God apply to all Israel and not just those who would make that choice individually. A reminder to all of us that we always have to make the choice personally and individually. Husbands whose wives won't follow the Lord, you still have to make that choice. Wives whose husbands won't follow the Lord, you still have to make that choice. Every time you're called to account, say at work or in a university classroom for your faith in Jesus Christ, you are the one who has to answer the questions. Fortunately for us today, God is speaking to us in his word and through his son, John the Baptist, the great, great character. Lauren, thanks very much. God bless you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our email inbox from Drew. Uh, Pastor Ron, Matthew 18, verse 1 through 4, tells us that unless you humble yourself like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus also tells the disciples, Jesus also tells the disciples that he who does will be the greatest in the kingdom. So, two questions. When Jesus is the greatest, that insinuates that there must be not so great people in heaven. You can't have the greatest without having mediocre minor people, right? Well, that's logic, Drew. Uh, this pertains to my question uh, the other day, that God doesn't display favoritism and has no inner circle. Let me stop there, and I can run these two questions together, Drew, but, but we, we've got to understand there is a hierarchy in heaven. Uh, some will receive many rewards. Some will receive few rewards. Some, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, are going to get to heaven as those smoking, meaning barely escaping the fire. So there is going to be a greater capacity for some to enjoy heaven than others. There's going to be greater work in the millennial reign and somehow, uh, by extension, in, in ways that we can't understand in heaven. So we've got to understand that. So uh, there, there's always an inner circle. Jesus had an inner circle. He always will. To much is given, much is required. To those who are faithful uh, with a little, he gives them a lot to be faithful with. For those who are not faithful in the little, well, even what they have will be taken from them and given to those who will be faithful. That's the, the, the that's Jesus himself uh, telling us that in his parables. So get to the question. So in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says we must humble ourselves as a little child. This obviously requires change, especially if you're not a child when you accept Christ. Therefore, if one takes this passage literally, this change is prerequisite to enter the kingdom. If you don't do this, are you omitted entry, even if you are obeying the commandments Jesus expressly told us to obey? Uh, Matthew 22, love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, and soul. The second is like unto it, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, or am I complicating the issue? Drew, you're really complicating the issue. What Jesus is simply saying that we have to be like a child. And when he told this story, he would have had a child right there as sort of a, a visual prop. And, and children believe things. Children's hearts are open to the good news of Jesus Christ. We never have to convince a five-year-old that, that he or she is a sinner and they need to accept Jesus. You, you can never find a five-year-old or a, an eight-year-old and say, do you want to go to heaven? Him say no. They don't argue with you. And Jesus wants us to become like a little child, but he wants us to have simple childlike faith as well. So that's how we get into the heaven, into the kingdom of heaven, simply by having the faith of a child, accepting what is obvious before us. And again, Drew, I can't tell you how many times I'll talk to somebody whose life is a mess, and, and a, a grown man or a grown woman, I'll tell them, look, are you ready now to, to stop sinning and repent? And they say, well, not quite ready yet. The child who's in trouble knows he's in trouble. And you say, do you want to get better? Do you want to escape judgment? Do you want to escape punishment? Yes, I do. And Jesus is simply saying, all we have to do is be like that child. 
So don't complicate the issue. Don't read too much into it. And while I know you are a very, very logical person, Drew, we get these questions from you frequently. Um, Jesus's point in the illustrations and the parables that he's using uh, is is that there are different levels of reward for people that go to heaven. So, Drew, thanks a lot. I appreciate it very, very much. Let's go to Vito calling from San Antonio on line one. Vito, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello, everybody. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. Thank you. Listen, um, you pretty much already answered the question. I was just going to say, you know, like what you were talking about, not overthinking things. And I do have a tendency of... uh, of doing it, especially since I uh, suffered through a divorce and uh, I hated it, but it's something that I don't know. I just keep overthinking at, at times. And, you know, I mean, I know what the Word of God says concerning all that, but we live in this life and in this unperfect world. And when it hits us, I mean, you know, it, it really is a shocker, but at the same time, you can't think. Like you said, you mentioned, you can't overthink it. You just have to continue in in, in believing God and, and His Word and doing what God as a child, like you were uh, talking about. Would, they, would you say that's the right perspective then? Am I lining that up? Yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, you know the, the times that we feel less like drawing into Jesus, the, the times we feel the least like opening our Bibles or, or, or talking to the Lord in prayer, uh, those are the times when we need it the most. And Jesus has promised always to be with us. Now, in your case, as, as a, a man who got a divorce and hated it, um, Jesus understands that. He, he hates divorce. Uh, that's why you hate divorce. Uh, he allows it. He says, because of the hardness of people's hearts, sometimes um, people make terrible, terrible choices. But it's in that time when you're hurting the most that you have to draw the closest to him. That's when you have to fight spiritually because it's also the time that the enemy is going to pounce and, and he is without mercy. And, and so Jesus is our only refuge. And at least for me, Vito, and, and I can hear the pain in your voice, at least for me, it's in those times when I'm hurting the most. Go ahead. And you know what? If I can say something real quick. And all this divorce was from is just that where we were living at, we were being persecuted, me and my wife and my children. And she was a special needs daughter. And one thing I could never understand is how these people could actually isolate and and and, and attack somebody and we never we never bothered anybody we just lived for the lord there and i know he said that we'd be persecuted but the viciousness of it and how people want to dismiss these things as well what are you doing wrong and the only thing i can say is we're living for jesus and because none of my enemies could say you stole from me you robbed me you slept with my wife you beat up my son you uh, vandalize uh, uh, the thing that they did for me and she didn't want to move out of a dangerous situation, and that's what led to everything, the, uh, the, just the disintegration. And it's been four years, and I'm just, you know, I know that God's there for me and God's with them as well, but it's just the devastation that took place, and I did hate it. Yeah. You know, Vito, one of the things that's hard for us to understand, Jesus said, blessed are we, and the word in the Greek translates to the word happy. Happy are we when we're persecuted for righteousness' sake. But he never said we would feel happy. He just said that we would be happy. Uh, we're sharing in his sufferings. And, and one of the things, I think we have to have a realistic worldview. Um, um, all you have to do is look around in this world. None of us should ever be surprised at how vicious people are. Uh, this is a world that Paul describes where, where men hate one another, where we're lovers of, of, of evil rather than lovers of God. Uh, the time that we live in is a time that Isaiah describes in Isaiah chapter 5 where he says we call good evil and evil good. So when you stand for Jesus Christ in a, in a dark place, uh, persecution 
uh, is something that we should expect. And the enemy is such a coward, he will always attack those who are the least able to defend themselves. That's why he goes after wives, he goes after children, uh, in your case, special needs child. Uh, he, he, will, he will use people to do the worst things. I know I mentioned this on the air the other day, but we're dealing in Texas with a news story where uh, a, a, a man at the, the train station uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, a bunch of kids, a group of teenagers, he was black, they were all black, they were smoking marijuana and they were loud, and he just said, hey, I think it's disrespectful if you're, but would you stop smoking the marijuana and, until you go wherever you're going to go? And they beat him senselessly. They beat him brutally. And you, you, you look at that situation and think, that's the world that we live in. My point being that we should never be caught off guard when this world turns violent or this world turns ugly. That's the world that we live in. All you have to do is spend an hour on Facebook and you can see how even professing Christians sort of swim in the dirty pool of this world. So Vito, I'll be praying for you, but stay close. When, when, when you feel the least like fighting is the time that you need to fight the most, and Jesus will be with you in those times. He doesn't promise things will be easy. He doesn't promise we'll always get the outcome to the solutions that we desire. Uh, but what he does promise that in the darkest of times, in the deepest of holes, He's going to be right there with us. Let me encourage you, Vito, to read Daniel chapter 3. Read it five, six times tonight. It doesn't take long. And, and let the Lord speak to your heart. I promise you he will. Thanks, Vito. appreciate the call very, very much. You're listening to the Word of Santa for Life. We've got 30 minutes left in this week. 340-9585 for your live calls at 340-9585. We will be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the program 340-9585 or toll free you can call 877-630-KSLR that's 630-5757 here's a question from marcello from our mobile app he says, about Exodus twenty two thirty one, is that just about being practical in a sanitary sense, or does it have a spiritual application? Let me read it, Marcelo, so that everybody can, can understand. Now, in, in the last part of Exodus, um, you know, we have the Ten Commandments in the 20th chapter, but the last part of Exodus is sort of expanding. These are the other laws that God gave Moses for the people. Uh, as they would enter the Promised Land. So, uh, verse 31 says, You are to be my holy people. So do not eat the meat of an animal torn by wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. Now, the, the answer to your question is, is, is yes to both of them. Uh, it is for sanitary reasons, and there is an important spiritual application for those of us who are New Testament Christians. Um, you know, what God is asking his people to do, when you get in the, into the, the, the promised land, when you cross over into Canaan, don't live like those people do. That's what all these laws are about. Be different from them. Set yourself apart from them. And that's why in verse 31, when he starts that whole thing out by, you are to be my holy people, don't be like the Canaanites. Don't be like the Hittites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and all of the other rites. And they would obviously indiscriminately eat the meat of an animal. They'd find an a, a, a animal torn by wild beasts, and, and uh, they, they would eat it if they were hungry, you know, food for the stomach and the stomach for food kind of thing. And God is saying, no, don't be like them. Don't be like them. Now, the application for us, Marcelo, is that we're to live in this world, though we're in the world, we're not of the world. And we're to live in this world uh, with a completely different purpose, a completely different focus. We're to live in this world uh, in a way that the unbelieving people in this world see us and say there's something different about them. And for us, we might say, you know, we go to a bar and have a bunch of drinks with our friends. But Christians, why do you want to do that and compromise your ability to tell people that are lost in that world about your Jesus? Why do we want to behave like unbelievers behave? Why is it that 
our hearts and our behavior doesn't change. And so God is simply saying to them, I'm setting you apart so that those pagans in the world will see there's something different about you and about your God. And for us, Jesus said, that we're to let our light so shine before men that they see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And so that's the application. We're not to be like them. We're to live holy lives. We're to live lives that are focused on pleasing God rather than pleasing us or or compromising in the world that we live in. Now, let me take this one step farther. Um, I've got some questions. I won't get to them today, but I've got some questions about the, the compromise going on in the church. You know, there are a whole bunch of churches now that have decided that it's no longer a sin to be a homosexual. We've got churches that have decided we're going to support and affirm uh, uh, gay marriage because we want to be known as compassionate people. Well, that's just eating the meat of an animal torn by wild beasts. We're not to be like other people. We're to be set apart from them, and the compromises just seem never to stop coming. And in my own view, I believe that this is the beginning of the great falling away, of the great apostasy that Paul talks about must first come before the man of lawlessness, men that we know as Antichrist, must come. We're seeing entire professing Christian denominations eating the meat of an animal torn by wild beasts. The wild beast is this world. Accepting sin. Approving of a lifestyle that sends somebody to hell if they don't repent and next Jesus into their hearts. And we're doing it in the name of love and it's because we don't really understand love at all. So nothing that happens today is any different than what was happening those thousands of years ago. Flesh is flesh and it always has been. Our challenge, because the Spirit of God lives in us, is not to compromise and be like the people around us. We need to be separate and distinct, set apart from the people in this world. Thanks for the question. Here is another question from Ralph. Uh, Pastor Ron, what do you think of King James Version only Christians? Ralph, I think they're not very good students. Uh, I think they don't understand um, how the Bible was put together and why there are different translations. Um, In all likelihood, they come from uh, pretty legalistic churches, um, and they're more focused on outward things rather than inner things. By that, I mean things of their own hearts. Now, I want to make this clear. I love the King James Version of the Bible. It's the version of the Bible that I grew up on. I've told you this before. I have uh, a, a visual impairment, so I don't see that well. There are times when I look at my notes as I'm preaching, and I can't see anything. Uh, and when I can't see what I'm reading, uh, my mind always reverts back to King James. Uh, my church knows when I can't see something up there because instead of reading uh, NIV, it'll just come out uh, King James because that's what I memorized. I certainly didn't memorize the whole King James Version of the Bible, but but it's so memorable that that's just what happens when I can't see. So I love the King James Version. It's memorable. It's rich. uh, and, And historically, it is beyond being important. But To believe that there's no other Bible that was written by God, there's no other Bible that's authoritative, is the most simplistic and naive of all possible beliefs. King James 1611, if the King James only version of the Bible is the only Bible that God approves of, that means nobody had God's word before the 17th century. If the King James Version of the Bible is the only authoritative Bible, it means that no Bible written in a foreign language is authoritative. And that would mean that God would just kind of write off whole groups of people who can't understand English. So there's nothing wrong with the King James Version of the Bible. If you love it, great. But never, ever make the mistake of assuming that it's the only Bible that is proved by God. It's simply not so. 340-9585. Let's go to Converse and talk with Phyllis. Phyllis, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Oh, hello, Pastor Ron. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you perfect. 
Oh, great. How are you today? I'm doing well, having a little bit of trouble with my voice all of a sudden. It seems like Wednesdays and Friday nights, it's hard. But other than that, I'm doing fine. Oh, well, that's good. First, if Paula listening, I want to tell her happy late birthday. <laughs> She's listening. <laughs> and also, um, I I have been studying, of course, uh, uh, the Moses and all the uh, plagues and all that. Uh, I guess when I finally got through with... Um, chapter two, well, whenever the place were, whatever chapter that was, uh, you would think with all the signs and things that God has sent, that Pharaoh would have probably, in, in my opinion, I would have said, well, I want to serve your God, you know, but it took so many plagues for him to uh, let uh, the Israelites go. And I guess um, if you can comment on that, please. And also, um, Praise the Lord this week, uh, not this week, but two weeks ago, I got a new manager on my job. And uh, he had, about the third day, he said, okay, I need to know some of you and give me a kind of a background through an email. So the first thing I did was emailed him back and told him how long I've been there. And I first told him, first and foremost, I love the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because he has pulled me through so much that I could not do myself. And toward the end of that email, after he read it, he came over to thank me, and I was just so amazed. <laughs> but anyway, that's what I wanted to tell you. And, oh, um, Phyllis, thank you, can, thank you for your witness. Thank you. And if you can co comment on... Um, with his heart and heart. I would appreciate it. And may I, you I can. all Thank have you. a blessed day. Thank you, Phyllis. We will. You see, let your light so shine before men that they can see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what we, all of us, ought to be doing. Wherever we are, whether it's at work, in our neighborhoods, at HEB, whatever it is you do, everywhere. We have an opportunity to share the goodness of God. So, Phyllis, thank you for your courageous stand. Regarding Pharaoh, you know, it's easy to look at Pharaoh and say, man, why didn't he get it? I'll answer that in a moment. But, Phyllis, we who live today in the 21st century, right here in San Antonio, Texas, we have more evidence, not only of God's holiness, of God's goodness, of Christ's sacrifice for us, by far than Pharaoh did, and yet we harden our hearts against God all the time. I said to an earlier question, I, I talk with people all the time whose lives are absolutely falling apart, and I'll tell them the truth about Jesus Christ, and because of the hardness of their hearts, they will avoid, ignore, even reject what is obvious. I've had people say, well, I know he, Jesus is God, but I'm just not ready to stop sinning. And their lives continue to spin out of control. We have, because of the empty tomb, more evidence than Pharaoh did. Now, to put Pharaoh in its proper perspective, Pharaoh believed he was the reincarnation of the sun god Ra, the Egyptian sun god. And so for somebody to say there is another god would be an insult to him, blasphemy to him, and a threat to him. And so when Moses came, now remember, the Pharaoh knew Moses. Moses, Hebrews suggest very strongly, could have been Pharaoh. But he chose to reject the riches, the, the treasures of Egypt to do what God asked him to do. So when Moses shows up and says, let my people go, who are you to demand anything of me? And in this particular case, he didn't listen. Now, we know he knew because over and over and over, Phyllis, Pharaoh changed his mind. Okay, I'll let him go. Pharaoh almost immediately began to negotiate with Moses. And since Moses wasn't going to compromise, his heart would get harder and harder and harder. And seven times he hardened his heart. And the seventh time was the last time. By the time his heart was so hard and God just gave him over to that heart and then he didn't let him go. We would think that after all of those plagues, especially the last one, 
that, that caused Pharaoh to say, okay, you can go. We would think he would also want to worship that God. But not only did he not want to worship him, get this, he changed his mind and went after them with his armies. Thus the crossing at the Red Sea where his entire army was destroyed. I always say sin is insane and Pharaoh is a great example of the insanity of sin. So make no mistake, we harden our hearts over and over and finally we get to a place, Phyllis, where our heart is so hard that we can't hear the voice of God calling us in that loving, um, sort of coercive way, persuading us to come to the truth. And I want to say again, we who live today have much more evidence of the reality, the historicity, the authenticity of God, that Jesus lived, he died, he didn't stay dead, than Pharaoh did by far, and we're still hardening our hearts against God. That's what sin is. The devil wants to destroy. You know, you think about the devil. He knew better than we can even imagine what God was like. He was the cherub that covered Ezekiel 28 in the King James suggests that that he was what we would call heaven's worship leader, the most beautiful of God's creation. But that wasn't enough for him. And if he who was created by God and saw God would rebel, well, the truth is humans have always been rebelling and always will rebel. Phyllis, it's great to hear from you. Thank you for calling. 340-9585. Mary wants to know, does God speak to us in our dreams? Uh, Mary, yes, he does sometimes. Now, here's the, the, the word of caution. Uh, we live in a time where we're always looking for these, um, I call them cliff notes, uh, the, the shortcuts to hearing God's voice. We don't want to pray. We don't want to spend time in the Word. So we, we have these dreams, and we automatically want to think, well, maybe that dream was from God, and, and we over-spiritualize those dreams. So um, we have to be careful about abuses. We have to be careful about the extremes. Yes, God still does speak to people in dreams sometimes. Not frequently, but sometimes. But we have to be careful, as I said, not to make, think that every dream is from God and over-spiritualizes dreams. Most of the time, Mary, dreams are just dreams. Dreams are a product of our, our, our psychology. Dreams are a, a part of, of our physiology. And in fact, maybe we eat something that, that disagrees with us. Uh, it's what we see or watch, what we, we partake of, you know, the things that we view or read. So yeah, we have those dreams. Our subconscious is very, very active. Here's what I always tell people, Mary. When God gives you a dream, you'll know it's from Him. And it, at the right time, it doesn't mean you're going to know instantly, but at the right time, you'll know what he wants to say. If he gives you a dream, it's because he wants you to know what he's trying to say to you. Usually, however, that's not going to be right now. I probably have had four or five dreams in my life that I knew were from the Lord. I've had a whole bunch more that I knew were from the enemy. Um couple of those dreams, he let me know instantly or answer a question I was dealing with. But a couple more of those dreams, he waited years to tell me what they were. The same thing is true with Paula. So yeah, God does speak to us in our dreams, but be very, very careful and be very, very balanced to make sure that you don't over-spiritualize all those dreams. Let's go to... Friend Tanya from San Leandro. Tanya, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I, I have to say a, a late happy birthday to Miss Paula. Um, I sent her a text, you know, let her know I'm, I'm oh, good. one to wish her happy birthday for next year. Okay, um, yeah, that's so. good. <laughs> so I have a question, Pastor Ron, about Isaiah 45, uh, verse 6 and 7. It said that they may know from the rising of the sun to this setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. So I was talking to somebody the other day about how, you know, we were talking about God and a loving God. And, and one of the things first brought up was, so when all these natural disasters happen, you know, uh, it says here in Isaiah that God is causing all these calamities. 
And so I know from just listening in the past that that really isn't a, a I don't even know how to answer that. I mean, I know that that's not God. Like when they say Katrina happened because it was God's wrath or punishment, I don't even know how to answer that. Um, and this is something that I've struggled with before, even with other people asking me this question. Now, I was kind of hoping you could give me some insights on just this passage in Neural, because this was the one that was referenced about things that happen awful in the world and that this is God's wrath. Yeah, I, I can do that, Tanya. Thank you very, very much. I, I, I'm, you know, thank you. I want to say thank you for the picture that you sent. You're, you're just above my eye level every day in my, my, my prayer board, and you and your family gets prayed for every single day. <laughs> thank you, Pastor Ron. We, we certainly welcome those. Thank you. We pray for you guys thank too. Okay, thank you. Hey, the answer to your question, uh, th- this is is uh, really a great promise of God to Israel. Remember, that's what Isaiah is talking to. He's talking to the people of Israel. And this is a, a promise that, that my sovereignty, you got to read the whole passage in context. In verse 2 it says, I'll go before you and make the crooked places straight. I'll break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the barns uh, of iron. And so when we look at something like this, God's sovereignty is what's in view, but his protecting and loving sovereignty is what's in view. Now, because he's speaking to Israel, we also know that God sent disaster upon them because of their rebellion against God. He sent the Assyrians first, and then 500 years later, he sent the Babylonians. Uh, we can read Jeremiah, and we can read Ezekiel, and understand their their travail over all of the calamity that was coming. Well, God was the source of those disasters. So it's important that we understand. We also know that there are times when God created phenomenon in weather to oppose enemy armies that would attack his people. So there are times when God causes those kinds of things. Now, we have to be careful uh, when when ignorant and unfeeling, uncaring, professing Christians say that God caused Katrina because he's mad at this world or God is going to do this or God's going to do that. Uh, we live in a fallen world and these things just happen. So God doesn't create those things, but even in his sovereignty, uh, the things that he knows are going to happen, he doesn't typically intervene. And so he is the source of things, but not the cause of things. And Tanya, I hope that really, really makes sense to you. He's the source of things, but not the cause of those things. And this psalm is meant to be uh, comforting. It's meant to be protective. And um, um, he says, I'm the Lord, there's no other. There's no God beside me. I will gird you. I will strengthen you. Though you have not known me, that's a wonderful promise. Even though you've behaved badly, even though you haven't given your heart to me, I will be there for you. Why? Because God loves us and he never stops loving us. And then he says in verse 6, there's a a, a, a statement of, of intent that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there's none besides me. That is precisely what happened with Pharaoh. A reference to the earlier question. God caused those terrible things to happen. In the process, he protected his people. Then verse 7 says, and we can't forget this, I make peace and create calamity. So in other words, God is in charge of good. He's in charge of bad. But he doesn't cause those things except on rare occasions. And... For us in the United States, especially the the compromised church that we have here in the West, for those of us in this country to to declare a hurricane or some other natural disaster and and declare that that is God's punishment is arrogance of the greatest degree. So, Tanya, I hope that helps. By the way, I'm going to be talking a little bit about this uh, in in terms of a very... uh, um, cultural and timely application for our our nation uh, at our pastor's discipleship class this Saturday in the second half of the class uh, where clearly some of the bad things that happen are happening at the hand of God because of the hand of God. So Tanya, thank you very, very much. Remember, he is the source of all things, but he's not the cause of those things. 340-9585. Let's go to Matthew on line one. Matthew, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I've, I've called several times, and I, I appreciate your wisdom and guidance to everybody. Um, Thank you. 
I, I, I'm going to try to make this quick, and I hope uh, hopefully I don't run out of time. But uh, I just have a question. I know about as far as predestination and how some people are, um, you know, like God uh, chose people to go to heaven and things like that. Now, I don't know. I'm not too familiar with that. So if you could elaborate on that. And also on the flip side, it, it, are, are people predestined or uh, chosen to not follow God uh, to where God will just, I mean, in the, in the, in the beginning of time where he just knows that people won't follow him or, or won't be in his kingdom. And I'll answer or I'll uh, hear the answer off the air. Thank you very much, Ron. Thank you, Matthew. Appreciate it very, very much. And thanks for listening and for participating by calling a couple of things. And I don't have, uh, we're inside just hit two minutes. So, um, I'll, maybe I'll deal with some of this a little bit on Monday as well. Um, the, the the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of predestination, is is inarguable. Uh, we are chosen by God. We love Him because He first loved us. Uh, he sets His love upon us. Uh, but we also know that He loved the whole world. For God is love. He so loved the world that He gave His only Son. So we've got to look for the balance in this this doctrine. Uh, the basis of God's choice of you, Matthew, his choice of me, was his foreknowledge. First Peter chapter 1, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Uh, God chooses according to his foreknowledge. So what that means is you and I were chosen for heaven because God knew that we would respond to the invitation to accept Jesus Christ. He knew we would become a part of the family. God knows everything. Now, he didn't cause us to choose Jesus. He just knew that we were. Now, in the same way, this idea that there are some people that are chosen for hell and they never have a chance to get saved, that is not only uh, insidious, it is evil and wicked. Uh, the truth is God knows who's going to reject him, and he loves them still, and he proved it by sending Jesus to die for them as well. He makes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust, the, the wicked and the evil. So we're chosen, but the base of that choice is the foreknowledge of God. God doesn't predestine anyone to hell. He gives us a choice. And in fact, if we go to hell, Matthew, we do so over his dead body. Get a little bit more on that on Monday. Thanks, Matthew, for the call. Hey, you've been listening to the Word of Santa for Life. Been a great week. Thanks for participating. God bless you. Be a light in church this week. See you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.